Section 1 of An Essay on the Art of Ingeniously Tormenting. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An Essay on the Art of Ingeniously Tormenting by Jane Collier. Dedication to the Honourable Mrs. Blank, the ingenious tormentor of the present age. Madam, as the great business of high life now consists in the art of ingeniously tormenting, and as you are acknowledged to excel so pre-eminently in that science, I have taken the liberty to offer this little volume to your notice, trusting that you will sometimes place it in the private pocket of your vis-a-vis that you will take a special care it is regularly laid on the satinwood table in your boudoir, and also will give your orders that it shall always appear on the salver, with the cakes, the comfortures, the milk punch, and other restoratives, by means of which you and your friends are enabled to endure the fatigue and ennui of fashionable society. I have the honour to remain, madam, yourself and friend, the Invisible Girl. Advertisement of the Present Editor Miss Jane Collier, the authoress of the present work, was the eldest sister of Dr. Collier of the Commons, who was the intimate friend of the celebrated Fielding and his sister Sarah. The essay dates its commencement from a party, in which her brother was present, who often lamented that a sister possessing such amiable manners and such abilities should only be known to the literary world by a satirical work. I wish, however, to preserve all the monuments of female genius, and, though I lament with her brother that Miss Collier did not give a more varied or extended scope to her literary powers, I must acknowledge that, amidst the innumerable talents of the fair sex, they possess the talent of ridicule in an eminent degree. Of the history of our authoress, little has survived. She enjoyed the friendship and the confidence of Richardson, and probably among the number of his female characters, that of Miss Collier was portrayed. Both herself and her friend Miss Sarah Fielding were excellent Greek and Latin scholars, and received their education equally from Dr. Collier. Miss J. Collier's father was rector of Langford in Wiltshire. Her sister Margaret accompanied Fielding to Lisbon, and, though not mentioned by name in his journey thither, she is alluded to in that account. Miss Collier had a brother, who was a colonel in the army. J. S. C. Preface Essay on the Art of Tormenting England has ever been allowed to excel most other nations in her improvements of arts and sciences. Although she seldom claims to herself the merit of invention, to her improvements also are many of her neighbours indebted, for the exercise of some of their most useful arts. It is not the benefit that may arise to the few from any invention, but its general utility, which ought to make such invention of universal estimation. Had the art of navigation gone no higher than to direct the course of a small boat by oars, the low countries only could have been the better for it. Again, should the inhabitants of Lapland invent the most convenient method for warming their houses by stoves, bringing them, by their improvements, to the utmost perfection, yet could not those who live within the tropics receive the least benefit from such their improvements, any more than the Laplanders could from the invention of fans, umbrellas, and cooling grottos. 
but as the science recommended in this short essay will be liable to no such exceptions, being, we presume, adapted to the circumstances, genius, and capacity of every nation under heaven, why should I doubt of that deserved fame, generally given to those, inventas, aut qui vitam excluer per artis, quique suim memoris, alios, facia, merendo. Virgil, L. V. I. V. 663. Unless, indeed, I should be told, that mankind are already too great adepts in this art, to need any further instructions. May I hope that my dear countrymen will pardon me for presuming, by the very publication of these rules, that they are not already absolutely perfect in this our art? Or, at least, that they may not always have an ingenious torment ready at hand to inflict? By the common run of servants, it might have been presumed that Dean Swift's instructions to them were unnecessary, but I dare believe no one ever read over that ingenious work without finding there some inventions for idleness, carelessness, and ill behaviour, which had never happened within his own experience. Although I do not suppose mankind, in general, to be thorough proficients in this our art, yet wrong not my judgment so much, gentle reader, as to imagine that I would write institutes of any science to those who are not unqualified for its practice, or do not show some genius in themselves towards it. Should you observe in one child a delight of drawing, and in another a turn towards music, would you not do your utmost to assist their genius, and to further their attempts? It is the great progress that I have observed to be already made in this our pleasant art, and the various attempts that I daily see towards bringing it to perfection, that encouraged me to offer this, my poor assistance. One requisite for approbation, I confess, is wanting in this work, for alas, I fear it will contain nothing new, but what is wanting in novelty shall be made up in utility, for, although I may not be able to show one new and untried method of plaguing, teasing, or tormenting, yet will it not be a very great help to anyone to have all the best and most approved methods collected together in one small pocket volume? Did I promise a new set of rules, then? Whatever was not mine might be claimed by its proper owner, and, like the jay in the fable, I should justly be stripped of my borrowed plumes, but, as I declare myself, only a humble collector, I doubt not but everyone who has practised, or who in writing has described an ingenious torment, will thank me for putting it in this my curious collection. That a love to this science is implanted in our natures, or early inculcated, is very evident, from the delight many children take in teasing and tormenting little dogs, cats, squirrels, or any other harmless animals that they get into their power. This love of tormenting may be said to have one thing in common with what some writers affirm belongs to the true love of virtue, namely, that it is exercised for its own sake and no other. For, can there be a clearer proof that, for its own sake alone, this art of tormenting is practised than that it never did nor ever can answer any other end? I know that the most expert practitioners deny this, and frequently declare, when they whip, cut, and slash the body, or when they tease, vex, and torment the mind, that it is done for the good of the person that suffers. Let the vulgar believe this if they will, but I, and my good pupils, understand things better. And while we can enjoy the high pleasure of tormenting, it matters not what the objects of our power either feel, think, or believe. With what contempt may we, adepts in this science, look down on the tyrants of old, on Nero, Caligula, Phalaris, and all such paltry pretenders to our art. 
Their inventions ending in death freed the sufferer from any farther torments, or, if they extended only to broken bones and bodily wounds, they were such as the skill of the surgeon could rectify or heal. But where is the hand can cure the wounds of unkindness, which our ingenious artists inflict? The practice of tormenting the body is not now, indeed, much allowed, except in some particular countries where slavery and ignorance subsist. But let us not, my dear countrymen, regret the loss of that trifling branch of our power, since we are at full liberty to exercise ourselves in that much higher pleasure, the tormenting, the mind. Nay, the very laws themselves, although they restrain us from being too free with our bastinado, pay so much regard to this our strong desire of tormenting, that, in some instances, they give us the fairest opportunities we could wish, of legally indulging ourselves in this pleasant sport. To make myself clearly understood, examine the case, as it stands, if I mistake not, between the debtor and the creditor. If a person owes me a thousand pounds, which, perhaps, too, may be my all, and has an estate of yearly that value, he may, if he pleases, and has a mind to plague, distress, and vex me, refuse paying me my money. Arrest him, then, cry you. If he be not in Parliament, I do. He gives bail, and, with my own money, works me through all the quirks of the law. At last, if he be one of the true blood of those, my best disciples, who would hang themselves to spite their neighbours, he retires into the liberties of the fleet, or king's bench, lives at his ease, and laughs at me and my family, who are starving. However, as some inconveniences attend such a proceeding, this method of plaguing a creditor is not very often practised. But on the other hand, how can I be thankful enough to our good laws for indulging me in the pleasure of persecuting and tormenting a man who is indebted to me, who does not want the will, but the power to pay me? As soon as I perceive this to be the case, I instantly throw him in jail, and there I keep him to pine away his life in want and misery. How will my pleasure be increased if he should be a man in any business or profession? For then I rob him of all probable means of escaping my power. It may be objected, perhaps, in this last instance, I act imprudently, that I defeat my own ends and am myself the means of losing my whole money. How ignorant of the true joys of tormenting is such an objector! You mistake greatly, my friend, if you think I defeat my own ends, for my ends are to plague and torment, not only a fellow creature, but a fellow Christian. And are there not instances enough of this kind of practice to make us fairly suppose that the value of one thousand or ten thousand pounds is nothing compared to the excessive delight of tormenting? But let me raise this joyous picture a little higher. Let me suppose that this wretched man, now pining in a prison, has a wife and children, whom he fondly loves. Must not my pleasure be doubled and trebled by the consideration that his children are starving, that his wife is in the same condition, oppressed also with unspeakable anguish for not being able to give her helpless infants any relief? Suppose, too, that the husband, with the reflection of all this, and his incapacity to help them, should be driven to distraction. Would not this exceed the most malicious transports of revenge ever exercised by an ancient or modern tyrant? If there are some odd sort of people who have no great relish for this kind of happiness, which I have here attempted to describe, yet let them not hastily condemn it as unnatural. For I appeal to the experience of mankind and ask whether there is anyone who has not heard of at least one instance of distress, 
near as high as the scene before described, and that the love of tormenting must have been the sole motive to a creditor's acting in such a manner, when his debtor could not pay him, is evident, from the impossibility of reasonably assigning any other cause. One strong objection, I know, will be made against my whole design, by people of weak consciences, which is, that every rule I shall lay down will be exactly opposite to the doctrine of Christianity. Greatly indeed, in a Christian country, should I fear the force of such an objection, could I perceive that any one vice was refrained from on that account only. Both theft and murder are forbidden by God himself, yet can any one say that our lives and properties would be in the least secure were it not for the penal laws of our country? Who is there that having received a blow on one cheek will turn the other while revenge can be had from the law of assault and battery? Are there any who exercise the virtues of patience and forgiveness if they can have legal means of punishing the aggressor and revenging themselves tenfold on the person who gives them the most slight offence? Innumerable are the instances that could be given to show that the doctrine of the gospel has very little influence upon the practice of its followers unless it be on a few obscure people that nobody knows. The foregoing formidable objection, therefore, we hope, is pretty well got over except with the obscure few above mentioned. But as I would willingly remove every the least shadow of an objection that I am acquainted with, I must take notice of one which was made by a person very zealous indeed for our cause, but who feared, he said, that people would not bear publicly to avow their love of tormenting, and their disregard of that very religion which they profess. This, at first, almost staggered me, and I was going to throw by my work, till I recollected several books, some too, written by the divines, that had been extremely well received, although they struck at the very foundation of our religion. These precedents are surely sufficient to make me depend upon coming off with impunity. Let me publish what I will, except a libel against any great man. For to abuse Christ himself is not, at present, esteemed so high an offence as to abuse one of his followers, or rather, one of his abusers. For such may we term all those who, without observing his laws, call themselves after his name. It has been already observed that the torments of the body are not much allowed in civilised nations, but yet, under the notion of punishments for faults, such as whipping and picketing amongst the soldiers, with some sorts of curious marine discipline, as the cat of nine tails, keel-hauling and the like, a man may pick out some excellent fun. For, if he will now and then inflict those punishments on the good, which were intended for the chastisement and amendment of the bad, he will not only work the flesh, but vex the spirit, of an ingenuous youth, as nothing can be more grating to a liberal mind than to be so unworthily treated. If I should be so happy, my good pupils, by these my hearty endeavours, as to instruct you thoroughly in the ingenious art of plaguing and tormenting the mind, you will have also more power over the body than you are at first aware of. You may take the Jews' forfeit of a pound of flesh without incurring the imputation of barbarity which was cast on him for that diverting joke. See The Merchant of Venice, written by Shakespeare. He was a mere mongrel at tormenting, to think of cutting it off with a knife. No, your true delicate way is to waste it off by degrees, for has not every creditor, by the pleasant assistance of a prison, the legal power of taking ten or twenty pounds of Christian flesh in forfeit of his bond? However, without such violent measures, you may have frequent opportunities, by teasing and tormenting, 
of getting out of your friends a good pretty picking. But be very careful daily to observe whether your patient continues in good health and is fat and well lichen. If so, you may be almost certain that your whole labour is thrown away. As soon, therefore, as you perceive this to be the case, you must, to speak in the phrase of surgeons when they hack and hew a human body, immediately choose another subject. End of section one.